Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Hi, my name is Kristen Padilla, and I'm the producer of the Beeson Podcast. We are delighted to share with you a conversation about the book of Revelation. But before we do, we want to mention that you will notice that the sound quality of this particular phone interview is not as good as we would like. However, the content was so valuable, we decided to share it with you, our listeners. As we do each week, we pray that this podcast will strengthen and encourage you in your walk with the Lord. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, I have the privilege today of talking with a distinguished biblical scholar, Dr. J. Scott Duvall. He is the J.C. and May Fuller Chair of Biblical Studies at Washita Baptist University in Arkadelphia, Arkansas. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, Scott. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Now, uh, we're going to talk today about a book, the Book of Revelation. And so I know all of our listeners had their ears perk up when we said that because that's one of the most interesting and yet controversial books, I think, in all of Holy Scripture. You've, you've written a commentary on Revelation and also a more recent book called The Heart of Revelation from Baker, academic. It's a wonderful uh, study of the book of Revelation. But before we jump right into that great uh, New Testament text, I want to ask you to say just a little bit about yourself. Tell us uh, your background, kind of how you got interested in all of this biblical studies. Yes. I grew up in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex and um, came to Washita as a student. I was actually a business and economics major. And toward the end of my time uh, at OBU, I felt like the Lord was calling me to a teaching ministry. And I went back to Southwestern Seminary. Um, while I was there, I had um, a mentor, Professor Tommy Lee, mm. who taught the book of Revelation, and that was my first experience with the book in in the early 1980s. Um, and since that time, I've I've just been captivated by the book. It it's it, it stretches your mind and your imagination, and um, you know I've. Um, been able to to work through Revelation and teaching settings and so forth. But um, then, fortunately, by God's grace, have come back to Washita to teach. So my path has been from Fort Worth to Arkadelphia and, and back several times. And I've been able to teach here since, uh, um, you know, 1989. So I've been here quite a while and had wonderful students and a great opportunity to work with colleagues here. And um, along with teaching, I've been able to do some writing. And recently I've had, you know, these two books published on Revelation, um, even though I've spent a lot of time studying it. Well, at, at Beeson, we love Washita because we, we've gotten some wonderful students from Washita who've come to Beeson Divinity School. And we actually stole your president, Dr. Andy Westmoreland, was the That's president true. of Washita <laughs> before becoming the president. So we feel a connection here uh, from Birmingham, Alabama to Arkadelphia. I want to ask you one more th a personal question. That's about your family. Uh, you dedicate your most recent book on Revelation to your three, you say, beautiful and beloved daughters, Ashley, Amy, and Megan. Tell us about them and your family. Well, I grew up in a family of all boys. And I married 
uh, Judy, my wife of almost 34 years, and she grew up in a family of all girls, and we have had all girls. So I'm the one who's had to adjust to <laughs> to a female household, but it's been great. Uh, I'm adding sons-in-law, uh, you know, and that's been fun. Uh, Judy is a native of Little Rock, and she her her ministry and calling here. At, she also works at OBU in our uh, Elrod Center for Family and Community, and she she connects our college students to service opportunities uh, in the community, and just does an amazing job at that. Um, we have uh, two granddaughters. Looks like we're continuing that trend, and. And in about two weeks, we'll have our third granddaughter. So wonderful! <laughs> it's, it's so been, God has prospered you as a father and now grandfather. That's wonderful. Yes. Oh, and it's uh, what they tell you about being a, a grandparent's all true. It's just pure fun. Now, in the, the heart of Revelation, your your most recent book on this uh, great New Testament text, uh, you say that uh, Christians typically read Revelation in one of two ways, and yet you propose a third way. Tell us about these different ways of reading Revelation and why your third way is a better way. Well, thanks for asking. Um, what I have observed is that, number one, some people avoid Revelation like the plague. It's a very strange book. They don't want anything to do with it. Everyone who mentions the book must be crazy, so their plan is to avoid Revelation. At the other extreme, you have people who are so fascinated by it that it becomes almost the only book in the canon. They obsess over it. They try to tie all of the Bible and all of human history into Revelation. It becomes the key for unlocking the meaning of life. And I think both of those extremes can can be problematic. Um, what I recommend is is simply reading Revelation in context. And if I could say just a word about the two major types of context, that might that yeah, might help sure. our listeners a bit. First of all, is just historical context. Uh, the book was written in in the first century. Most most scholars think in the the later part of the first century when the Roman Empire was really starting to pressure Christians to acknowledge that Caesar was Lord. And of course, that runs counter to the primary Christian confession that Jesus is Lord, and their world was full of symbols of Caesar's lordship, I mean, statues and temples and coins, and they would have festivals, and they had trade guilds, and so they were feeling a lot of pressure to conform uh, to that world and and to acknowledge Caesar at the expense of Christ. And I love what the theologian Richard Bauckham Said he said Revelation gives us a set of prophetic counter images, and it impresses on us a different world, um, the 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 heavenly perspective. And it's almost like I tell my students, it's like putting on a virtual reality helmet, and you enter into reality as God sees it. You enter into this heavenly perspective where, um, you know, the uh, the Roman emperor is no longer. Uh, the queen, but she's a harlot, and you see, you see evil sort of unmasked, and you see that Jesus is the true Lord, and that God wins, and and that in the end He defeats the powers of darkness and judges evil and rescues His people and transforms creation, and then and then you pull off the virtual reality helmet, and you can re-enter 
your world and live faithfully because you know what's what's coming. You know who wins. So when we ignore the historical context, we, we really lose a lot. Um, then the other context is just literary context. And Revelation is a strange book. Most people get through about chapter five, and they hit chapter six, yeah. and the wheels come off. Yeah. <laughs> and most of the time when you hear sermons, it's about Revelation 1 through 3, because that's safe. That's, and, that's the letters know, to the churches, right? Mostly. That's right. They may venture into chapters four and five, which is about you know God on his throne and and Christ as the, uh, the slain lamb and so forth. But Revelation uses picture language. And what I mean by that is it uses symbols and images in very creative ways, and it it it's to be taken seriously always, but not always literally. And, and an expression that we're familiar with, the Lamb of God, helps us with that, because I don't think any of us would expect to go to heaven and to see Jesus as a four-footed, you know, woolly creature. Um, that's... That's an image of what Christ has done for us on the cross. He he died to pay for our sins. Um, and and yet, we're supposed to take that seriously. So Lamb of God is real. It's real in history, but it's not always to be taken literally because it's picture language. And I think we have to discover the message to those original readers and then and then take picture language seriously, but not always literally, and focus on what that image and what that symbol is really telling us. Focus on the theological message of the book, and um, you know we can make some sense of it. So my proposal is really nothing new, but it's just I'm, I'm encouraging people to take the context of the book seriously, both the historical and the literary context. Now, the word for revelation in Greek is apocalypsis. And so yeah. we get our word apocalypse and apocalyptic literature. Revelation is a genre of apocalyptic literature. Say a little bit about what that means. Well, it's it's not something we're familiar with. Um, maybe the closest we come to apocalyptic literature would be a political cartoon, where <laughs> you know, or or fantasy literature. So it's exaggerated in some sense, or at least uh, surreal a little bit. Yes, and so you'll. You know, you'll have the red dragon, and and we we know because we we have grown up, you know, listening to God's word and hearing sermons that the red dragon is Satan, but that doesn't mean Satan's actually a red dragon. Mm. That's an image for his um, for his character, for his nature, and so forth. About a, I guess it was a year, a year and a half ago, my son Christian, who's a, a scholar, a church historian, um, and I, along with two other friends, uh, made a pilgrimage to the Isle of Patmos, where the Book of Revelation was written, as we read in chapter 1. And it was amazing to be there. There's this cave of the apocalypse you can enter into where it is said, by tradition, John actually was when he received the Revelation. And looking out, have you, have you been there yourself? Yes, it's fascinating. Yeah, and you can look out on the Aegean Sea, and you can just sort of imagine these images, these symbols arising in in the imagination of John as he's uh, there as a prisoner uh, for the witness of Christ, the Bible says. That's right. And, you know, John, probably an old man at that time, as he is uh, 
as he's in worship, receives this heavenly vision and and writes about this vision, you know, you that's just like God because you would think, well, what what can this this old man on an island in the middle of nowhere have, you know, how, what can he what can he possibly how can he possibly be a threat to the Roman Empire? And here we are talking about the book of Revelation and Rome has long since died. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, I'm a Reformation scholar, and I, I found it interesting that some of the great reformers uh, never wrote on Revelation. Uh, Luther never wrote a commentary on Revelation. Calvin never wrote a commentary on Revelation. Erasmus did paraphrases on every other book in the New Testament except the Book of Revelation. So that's we, right. We, that's, we've kind of inherited this. We're not going to deal with it, or we get into all the lurid details and. Uh, prophetic. Now, we say it's an apocalyptic book, but it also has a dimension of being a prophecy, doesn't it? What, what oh, absolutely. What does that and, mean? And, it's, and usually when, when people think of prophecy, they think of predicting the future. But biblical prophecy really has more to do with with proclaiming God's truth rather than predicting the future. It's more about forth-telling than foretelling. And, and if you go back and look at the Old Testament prophets, they, they constantly were saying, thus saith the Lord, applying the truth of God to their current circumstances. And then, of course, there might be an element of prediction of the future, but we have, we have almost totally lost that forth-telling dimension and, and think only of prediction. And I think that's our loss. And Revelation is a prophecy, and it's and it's a prophecy to be obeyed, and it's very difficult to obey a prediction, and that that's a good reminder that we are really looking at a at a forthtelling or a proclamation of God's truth for for that world and for our world. Scott, I love the way you organize your book, The Heart of Revelation, according to ten different themes that are in the book. Uh, I want to ask you about two or three of those themes, and have you just make some comment on it. Uh, first of all, worship. I tell students that I think Revelation is probably the premier worship book in the New Testament. Throughout the whole book, so many rich passages of worship um, attributing to God the character um, that is worthy of our worship. And it's really the book that helps us respond to who God is. Um, we worship God as our creator. We worship Christ as our redeemer. Um, and you, you see worship as, as a response to all that God has done. I mean, it just, it just touches on worship from so many angles. We worship God because he uh, has decisively defeated evil at the cross and resurrection of Christ and will completely destroy evil. Um, in the end, and you know, you see uh, the portrait of angels in Revelation is often of them falling down in worship. So, I mean, it is it is a rich, rich worship. It's interesting. The only time the word Hallelujah is used in the New Testament is in the Book of Revelation. Oh, that's 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 fascinating. Yeah. Praise Yahweh. Um, uh, you, in chapter right. nineteen. Um, but I love that. Uh, image that we have in Revelation around the throne of God where you have out, out of the martyrs from every tribe and nation and language group, ethnic group on the face yes. of the earth. So this sort of uh, multicolored people of God gathered in prayer. Oh, and absolutely. And 
you know, you have you have a group in Revelation, um, the inhabitants of the earth or the earth dwellers, and it's always used negatively. But the topic of the nations can be used negatively or positively, and it's almost like the nations are up for grabs. Mm. Um, and so you see, you see nations that follow um, the beast, but you also see nations redeemed nations, I believe, or people from redeemed nations who are brought into, you know, the new creation. And um, it's it's just the multicultural people of God is is emphasized, you know, throughout the book. Yeah. So it, it's going to be a great reunion, I think. Now, you've already touched on this other theme a little bit, but I, I'd like for you to say more. You have a, you have a whole chapter called Our Enemies. And when you're talking about the dragon uh, who stands on the, the shore of the sea and the unholy trinity, what is the unholy trinity? Well, one of the characteristics of evil that Revelation um, points out is that evil is always an imitation of good. And Revelation emphasizes the triune God, uh, God the Father Almighty, Jesus Christ our Lord, and of course the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's role in Revelation is is more subtle. Um, the Spirit, um, as one theologian said, is it could almost be described as the shy member of the Trinity. Uh, and so you you have the, you know the Spirit um, appearing in Revelation in in more subtle ways, but then evil um, attempts to mimic good. So you have you have the dragon who would parallel God the Father. Uh, you have then the beast from the sea who would parallel Jesus and the you know the beast from the earth who would parallel the spirit and and you know these these um these are probably the three figures the three leading figures of evil uh in the book and it's just another attempt to uh at 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 serving as a parody of evil uh, i mean of good so um you know, you you see that pretty clearly when you when you move throughout the book. And evil's chief um, weapon, I suppose, is accusation and deception. And so that makes truth especially important uh, in the lives of of uh, Christians in the church. I believe there, there's a lot of darkness in Revelation. There's a lot of uh, violence in Revelation. But we shouldn't give people the impression that this is the dominant theme because, as you bring out so clearly, it's really uh, Jesus Christ who is front and center, the Lamb who was slain and, and yet who reigns. And, and you talk about how Jesus Christ is the one who is a shepherd to his people as well as the That's lion right. of the tribe of Judah. So talk, talk about those different images of Christ and what they say to us when today. One of the uh, interesting things about Christ is when uh, John hears about a lion, and when he turns and looks, he sees a lamb looking as if it had been slain, which, of course, suggests, you know, the crucified Christ now risen. Um, But it also tells us that God's way of conquering evil is through the cross and resurrection. Um. The, the lion has conquered, in a sense, by being conquered. And yet, um, when Satan believed that he had won, then God raises Jesus from the dead. And, of course, evil is then 
uh, you might say, uh, turned upside down or defeated permanently. And Jesus is portrayed as this slaughtered lamb, uh, firstborn from the dead. Um, he is also, however, portrayed as what you might call a roaring roaring ram or a roaring lamb. And what this means, I think, is that um, as God's people live in a fallen, broken world and are sometimes subject to persecution, and there you do read of martyrdom in the book of Revelation, um, then the question that the martyrs ask is, how long, O Lord, until you you judge evil, basically? And so it's it's um, Revelation presents a, a solution to the problem of evil by by assuring us that God is patient. God wants the nations to repent and turn back to Him, but He will judge evil. And and so you see a portrait of Christ not just as the sacrificial lamb, but as the conquering Christ who will return in power and and judge evil once and for all. And, and, um, that's, you know, I, I tell our students, I say, you, you, you may cringe at this, but I think our brothers and sisters who live in other parts of the world where the church is being persecuted heavily can understand that, that question, how long, O oh Lord, before you, you judge evil. I mean, and you can't let evil get away with it. You can't, you can't let darkness win. And it, it calls into question your character and your integrity. So, that is also a role played by Christ in the book, and and it's a significant one, I believe. And and you take us in your book as uh, John in the book of Revelation takes us to the to the creation, the new creation. Uh, I would not be a very good in- interviewer with you on the book of Revelation if I did not ask you about chapter twenty, and particularly the question of the millennial reign, the 1,000 years, that's been one of the most controversial and disputed, I guess, interpretations of Revelation. Uh, how do you deal with that question, and what would you say to our listeners who may be puzzled about it? Well, one of the things that I would suggest to begin with is that you can understand Revelation and benefit from its message and benefit in your Christian life from of the main teachings of the book without knowing 100% fully and completely uh, what you believe about the millennium. You have very committed Christians, and I could line up commentaries, (laughs) very committed Christians who disagree about the exact nature of the millennium, which is found in the early part of chapter 20. Um, What, so, you know, I, in, Although in my commentary, I spend more time on this. And in this particular book, I'm not majoring on, in in the book, The Heart of Revelation, I'm not majoring on those areas that really sort of take us apart from one another. But because we've focused so much on those that we've, I think, lost the central message of the book. And yet, um, even those who, you know, we, we, you find disagreement about that. But even in that case, it's really good to know that there are a number of very, very key truths and doctrines and um, realities that that all Christians are going to subscribe to. For example, Jesus will return. Jesus will judge evil. 
<laughs> uh, Christ will raise his people from the dead and give us resurrection bodies. Uh, God is in control. God wins. Um, our enemies will be judged. Uh, we will um, live in a in a new heaven and new earth, a completely new, transformed creation. Uh, we will live in God's presence. We will worship Him. And so, you know, when you when you start, you know, naming off these ten or fifteen things that all of us agree on, I just felt we should have. You know, at least one book out there <laughs> that that didn't didn't focus on chapter twenty. So I, I have a couple of paragraphs on it in this book because I don't want us to miss what we all do agree on. Absolutely. Yeah. When, when I was growing up, uh, you may remember these great uh, pastors. Also, among, within the Southern Baptist world, probably the two most famous pastors were Dr. Herschel Hobbs and Dr. W. A. Criswell. And they, right. they disagreed on this question. Uh, one, oh, was a, exactly. <laughs> one was an amillennialist and one was a premillennialist, and they held those views deeply and talked about them with passion. But they were the best of friends and worked right. side by side uh, for the cause of the gospel. So one of, one of the things you mentioned, this I think is in your commentary and not this more recent book, The Heart of Revelation, you say we need to interpret controversial passages, I'm sure you have in mind, like Revelation 20, with a healthy dose of humility. That's a good word of advice for us all. Yes, because, um, and, and this, this is also a perspective that has helped me. When, when I'm studying Romans or Ephesians, I, I tend to work from the details toward the whole. In other words, you, you understand the details and you put together, in this case, Paul's argument, and you and you you fit together the structure and you put together the outline and and then you can understand the big picture. It's exactly the opposite with revelation. You start with the whole, you start with the big picture, and you can understand the really big overall message and then over time, as you learn more and grow and mature, you may understand more of those details, but you know there's still going to probably be some details that you just scratch your head and say, I'm not really sure, Lord. Uh, we'll we'll find out one day what that means, what that's referring to. Um, and yet, if you start with the big picture and move toward the details, you know, you you can understand the, the overall message of the book. And what's, what's tremendously sad to me is that because of controversies, people have just written the book off. And it is it is the hope book of the New Testament. It's the final chapter of, of the biblical canon, and and what a, what a shame to miss the hope and the encouragement um, that that God has for us in this final book because we're not sure about some of these tiny details that scholars have debated for for a long time. Well, well, the book of Revelation certainly begins with a very big picture, doesn't it? Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And then it closes with this wonderful invitation, this gospel invitation uh, to come to the water, uh, to, to come and eat and drink uh, and receive from, from God the, the life that uh, is meant for eternity. So I think it's a book that can build up Christians in their faith and certainly be a strength to Christians who are facing persecution and suffering in our world today. 
So thank Absolutely. you, thank you for doing this book and for for meeting with us to talk today on on the Beeson podcast about it. I've been speaking to Dr. J. Scott Duvall. He is the J.C. and May Fuller Chair of Biblical Studies at Washita Baptist University in Arkadelphia, Arkansas. You're doing a great job over there with students that you send to Beeson and elsewhere, I'm sure. So may God bless you and strengthen your work. It has been a privilege to speak with you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.